save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Master Force Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Master Force tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw. I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. And I run a company called One Taste. And our vision is that one day you'll hear yoga, meditation, and orgasm all in the same sentence without whispering the third. How comfortable are you talking about sex? I want to thank the people of TEDx for having me on this stage. This has been a dream of mine that I thought was absolutely impossible. It should be. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazdavi at Cena Now on all social media. We are the show that takes a hard look, not just at the scams that we see in the news, but who the people are that are committing these cons. Why did they do it? Where did they learn it? What makes them tick? If you are a person that has taken advantage of vulnerable people financially, we will find you. We will make fun of you. And we will learn your ways and absorb your powers for good. <laughs> Today... We're talking about orgasms. I know. I can't imagine a more vulnerable state for a person than when you're coming or everything that surrounds that moment. Listen, we're going to be sensitive about it, but we are going to laugh about it because that's how we get close to it. Justin Williams is here with us in the virtual studio at Justin Williams Comedy. You can find him on Facebook and also hit us up on the Discord. Find the invite link in our bio. Justin, how are you? I'm good, Cena. This is a very wild topic, and I can't wait to dive into it deeper with you. I don't know what's going to happen. Are we going to get canceled? Are we going to get shadow banned by the algorithm? Or am I overthinking this like everything else in my life, Justin? I think this could be our most highly rated episode. As long as we put orgasm in the description, it should get a million views. You know, that that did cross my mind. And I don't know how I feel about it, but at this point, uh, I'll take the audience wherever we can get it. Sex sells, you know, and even if you're celibate, you know, you sell a bit, I'll buy a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. This is going to be an interesting episode. Let's get into it. Okay, Justin, here's what we got today. I believe this is our first wellness fraud. The company is called One Taste, and they trademarked a a Bikram-like system of orgasm called orgasmic meditation, or OM. And a lot of people called this a sex cult because of the predatory sales behaviors and how they controlled their members. But at the core is a classic financial scheme. They wanted students to buy classes and wanted those students to become teachers or they wanted the students that weren't teachers to live in their own centers and get other people to take classes as well. What's interesting about orgasmic meditation is that it's a practice that's not really new at all. Remember Kevin Trudeau and and his mega memory thing? He just repackaged the memory palace. Well, what we'll find out here is that One Taste just repackaged a 60s-era practice called basic sensuality and responsible hedonism. Okay, so orgasmic meditation basically involves a man fully clothed and a woman with everything on but her bottoms. I don't know if socks were on still or not. Our research didn't turn up anything there. The man begins by describing the woman's vagina and then starts a timer and with gloves on, rubs the woman's clitoris for 15 minutes. And the part that he's rubbing is the one o'clock position on the clitoris. That's it. That's the practice. 15 minutes later, there's no sex after, presumably. And you just go right back to work. Here's a clip, though, of one of the instructional videos from One Taste. Home is structured. 
because we found that doing it the same way every time allows us to relax. We don't have to worry about what's coming next. We can find a rhythm within it. Ohm is a partnered practice. You can't ohm alone or with a vibrator because you can't take yourself out of control. Just like you can't tickle yourself, you can't cultivate this type of orgasm solo. Ohm is goalless. Being goalless takes the pressure off. There's simply no way to do it wrong. There's nowhere to get to, and there's nothing to achieve for either the woman or her stroker. Wait, the woman or what? It's the stroker. <laughs> the only thing that's required is they notice what they're feeling. Ultimately, Ohm is a practice. So you don't need to be turned on or in the mood to do it. In fact, Ohm cultivates libido. All you need is 15 minutes, a clean, clear space, and a willing partner. I'm sorry, is there a stroking studies major I missed in college? Seems like a lucrative profession. I be stroking to the east, stroking to the west. Doing all alone, cause I know best. I be stroking. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, they call it Ohm. Yeah, because it's orgasmic meditation, Ohm. But it's a very structured pen. It's like there's definitely some Bikram vibes here. I like how they try to say like a willing partner, but they're like sometimes you can't do things by yourself, and they must be done to you against your will. So all you need is a willing partner. Yeah, you don't even have to be attracted to the person either. You just need anyone yeah. can do it. Anyone. Literally any human. Maybe a disgusting old rich man that wants to touch you that could do it. That could be it. Just accept the ohm. Sometimes your ohm can be activated by a man on roller skates who is repeatedly saying, I am a computer. <laughs> One taste, like any other corrupt lifestyle wellness brand, it promised to change people's lives. But this time it was one orgasm at a time. Justin, uh, you ever do any orgasmic meditation? I have never had an orgasm, so <laughs> this is all new to me. I'm looking forward to learning a lot in this episode. Okay, did the milkman help you with your child? Is that? I don't know how he got. Yeah, I got, <laughs> I got a lot of questions. So I'm just looking forward to learning. Whereas, uh, you know, some frauds are are lovely money laundering schemes. This one is much more insidious. One taste and its founder, Nicole Daydone, took advantage of people's vulnerabilities and got them to spend tens of thousands of dollars on high priced trainings and classes. Like most cult frauds, the people that worked with Nicole and One Taste were the ones that lost the most. Now, when we talk about manipulation and orgasms, what we're really actually talking about is sexual assault and coercive control, really. We've talked about sexual assault before with Jim Baker, but I want to make sure the audience knows that it's going to get weird and maybe a little uncomfortable on this episode. We promise we'll get back to very much more goofier uh, scams in the future, but this one was one that we really wanted to yeah, focus Yeah, so on. please don't listen to this on a boombox. I mean, you could. It's just it's an aggressive it's an aggressive play, I think. To help us navigate this very complex topic, we've got friend of Last Podcast Network. Maybe you've seen her on streams with Jackie Zabrowski on Oh No, It's Jackie. I'd love to welcome Dr. Jordan Soper, certified sex therapist and owner of the Center of Sexual Wellness in Nevada. Dr. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I hope we did already the first you know two minutes of the show appropriately. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there, there's an appropriate framing and appropriate just setting of the rage that you're going to probably experience while going over some of this. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It is a certain type of evil when you use the orgasm for financial gain. I never thought, I've never thought about it actually. And I'm happy I never thought about it until this episode, but it really is disgusting, isn't it? It definitely is. And simultaneously, the idea of sex being used for profit and marketing and using assaultive measures to for coercion to get where you're where you're at or to have people get to a certain degree of privilege or power or financial security or stability is nothing new this one is just very focused and i think that's what makes it stand out the most is it's just got a very very heavy focus to it that we don't normally see it like in porn and porn Porn is general of like people fucking. 
This is a little bit more specific. This feels a little more personal to some degree. And I wonder if that's what the ick factor is. And what we'll find is that this was very organized and it was very, very intentional in the worst way possible. But, you know, one of the ways that people got into one taste, right, is this orgasm. We'll talk about orgasmic meditation in a minute here. But one of the ways that people got into it was this gap, this pleasure gap that people experience where they're not necessarily getting what they want out of their sexual life at the moment. Can you speak a little bit about what the pleasure gap is and what would make people yearn for a fulfillment of some kind? Mm-hmm. I'll do my very best because the definitions really change depending on who's doing the research, who's funding it, as well as who's just speaking about well, it. Well, Henry Zabrowski and the Last Podcast Network are funding your research right now. So <laughs> oh, I got is- a list. I got a list of <laughs> shit. So <laughs> what, what is kind of traditionally thought about with the notion of a pleasure gap or an orgasm gap is very genderfied. The notion that women and men experience pleasure and orgasm in their in their partnered sexual encounters at a statistically different rate with males experiencing more orgasm more pleasure in comparison to females that is kind of traditionally what it is a lot of the focus has been on the actual physiological experience of an orgasm so when we talk about pleasure gaps or orgasm gaps, that's traditionally what you're looking at is a statistical difference between the ease of a man man having an orgasm versus the ease or the quickness of a woman having an orgasm. Traditionally, that's kind of what we're looking at. The concern that I have with a lot of it is there's so much focus on orgasm, not necessarily pleasure. Mm. And that's what I think is really fascinating because Wente sold it on orgasm not actually enjoying the experience, not actually feeling pleasure, just on the biosystem of what an orgasm is. And, and uh, Nicole Daydon, the CEO of One Taste, has a TED Talk about this stuff, uh, which is hilarious. And, and I think there's an important point to note that with all the new money that flooded into tech, I think provided a breeding ground for, oh God, the, the weird sex puns here oh, are going to so be awful. Many. Uh just just very uncomfortable. But the, the breeding ground to make this so viable because there's so much easy free money that's coming in there. You've got people that are working 12 hour days that are making, you know, mid six figures or high six figures, if not seven figures. And they've got money to burn and they probably are experiencing that pleasure gap. So I can see. And then you have people that want to look up to them that are getting involved. Well, let's play a TED Talk clip now. All right. Okay. My subject's a little bit more challenging to introduce. I've been doing radio interviews lately and noticing that the interviewer will spend the first 40% of the interviewer preparing the listening audience for me to come on. They'll say things like, ladies and gentlemen, the author of Slow Sex, the art and practice of, uh, Nicole Dedone. So I figure we're TED people, we're fast, we're savvy, we're smart. So I'm just going to break the ice for us, okay? My topic is female orgasm. (laughs) So that said, is that it roots our fundamental capacity for connection. It's for this reason that I believe that at at some point you will hear yoga, meditation, and orgasm. And you won't hear it, yoga, meditation, and orgasm. Nicole Daydone was born in Los Gatos, California in August of 1967. Apparently, as a child, she had a tendency, Dr. Jordan, to bite the back of women's knees if they were wearing miniskirts. In your professional opinion, can you analyze that for us? Not my my, uh, specialization. I don't work with Oh, you didn't study that? Oh, I don't know. Or knees? Did you work with knees, backs? I worked a little bit with knees. A little bit, but not too much. The bee's knees, I think, is more of my specialization right there. Got it, got it. With kiddos, it's looking at, is this a behavior that has been encouraged? Like if 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 she bites the back of the knees, does someone go to giggle and go, oh, Oh, don't do that. Or are they getting swat like smacked? How much of it got reinforced inadvertently that this is actually an okay behavior mm. versus an expression of just wants to stick her mouth on stuff. Depending on the age is really going to do that. 
but it could also be something that was observed or modeled. I don't know this person's background. So what was their exposure to sex education? What was, what did they kind of go through when they were kids? Is there a trauma history there? And based on what I think I saw about this person, I think we need to definitely talk about the the impact of childhood trauma on long-term cognition and thought into adulthood. But that would be my main question that we can't say definitively A caused B. And speaking of that childhood trauma, there, there I think definitely was some, uh, you know, her parents divorced, but I don't think that was the big problem here in the, in the 70s. Her father gets a little weird yeah. here. He d- was arrested and went to prison for molesting two young girls. And in the future, Nicole maintains that she was never abused by him. Dr. Jordan, this is something we've talked about with other fraudsters where they do experience some sort of trauma in their childhood and it kind of like sets them on a path or kind of shifts their reality to kind of cope with that trauma in a certain way and then it leads to certain things. Obviously, we can never pinpoint exactly what's what, but it does add to the ingredients that kind of make them who they are. What is something like this now, whether or not she was abused by her father or not, we can put that aside for a second. What does that kind of trauma do to a, a young person and how does that get reflected in when they're an adult? It's a great question. And one that is a huge specialization of psychologists and sex therapists alike, looking at the negative impact of childhood traumatic experiences on long-term adult experience, experience and cognition. The thing about trauma, a, at least 80% of us are going to go through it at some point in our lifetime. And given the nature of everything that just went on globally right now with COVID, that number is just about 100% at this point in time. But when we look at the experience of what is called childhood sexual abuse or assault, when we look at childhood related experiences, what childhood trauma essentially does is it creates paired connectors in the brain of a very small child, typically, or even into teenage years where the person doesn't really have the full cognitive capability to recognize why someone would do that. So often it won't make sense. So then they try to make sense of it, whether that's, oh, this is normal. This is what every parent does. This is what every family member does. This is what every date does. So it would become this very normal experience and normalization of it that will then take into future relationships. For some people, there's grooming where not only are they told that this is normal, but this Mm. is encouraged. You should definitely do this. This is what normal people do. This is what you're supposed to do. And then some people will take it very internal and say, I'm bad for this. I am a terrible person for experiencing this. I must have done something for this. So what trauma will essentially do while experienced in childhood especially so, it'll reshape the neurological pathways in the brain and how someone will later on interact with the world, both the way that they think and the way that they are actually behaving. That is where we look at the impact of traumatic events. However, 80% of us are going to go through some type of traumatic event. Majority of people don't go on to actually traumatize other people. That's a huge myth mm. is individuals who've been sexually assaulted are more likely to sexually assault others. That's actually not true. Same with individuals who are victims of violence or who have mental illness. They are not more likely to actually engage in violence against others. So that cliche of hurt people hurt people is not actually accurate at all. Where did that come from? That's crazy. That's all. I've heard that so it's much. It's one of those cliches that I think is just kind of evolved over time of like, oh, this is this helps explain why someone might do this. Yeah, mental Ill, mental health related conditions, traumatic event exposure, substance use, that might help explain mm. why someone might engage in something, but it is not an excuse for someone's behavior. We are all in charge of our own behavioral responses. And I think this is where she very much stands out of She's still making an active choice to do certain things like this. Could her trauma have influenced it? I think our traumas influence everything that we do. It's a matter of how big of an influence is it going to be. Can we get this note to fans of Kanye West that are excusing a a range of alarming behaviors? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Thank you. We've been talking about that this week as well. Mm -hmm. However way that trauma influenced her life, she did end up going to college at San Francisco State University and got a degree in gender communication. Now, I have to say, I had no fucking idea what gender communication was other than thinking that it was just like, you know, humans talking to each other. And I looked it up on the old Google and it says 
Now, this is the Google definition, so don't at me for not getting it correct here. Gender communication refers to a specialized area that focuses on the differences in how men and women communicate. Doesn't seem a very inclusive definition already. I'll say that much. This is also like 19, what, 1970, something, 1980, something. (laughs) So it's an interesting field made uh, made even more complicated by the changing definitions of gender in the 21st century. Yeah, I think this this it just seems a little difficult. Justin, I think you have also have a PhD in this as well. Is that right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I do like political economy stuff. It is so far from this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's how people interact. That's fundamentally is like how do humans interact with each other? Because we are all fundamentally very stupid. And really suck at talking to each other. So I kind of the 100% agree. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's interesting, too, because now that I'm looking at it again, it kind of makes me think that, you know, with a person like Nicole Daydon, this is almost like weapons that she's able to kind of employ and, and tools that she's able to use to influence. Mm-hmm. After college, she stayed around San Francisco and worked at an art gallery. And that seems like good times. But she finds out that her father that was in prison dies of cancer. And and this apparently was a turning point in her life that really shook her up. And she gets heavily into spirituality, specifically Buddhism and Kabbalah. And and get this is where it gets wild, right? She is about to become a nun and join the Zen Buddhist Center of San Francisco. A celibate nun, not just any nun. I don't know. Aren't all nuns celibate? Actually, no, I don't think so. No, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Wait, so I can like I can go on like Tinder and there might be some nuns or something like that. <laughs> I was gonna say there might be a special app for that. I'm not sure about <laughs> Tinder. Justin Williams always sneaking around the nunnery <laughs> with a bottle of wine. <laughs> but here's here's where her orgasmic journey starts, and it's really and we'll go to her TED talk here to hear the story. But she meets a guy at a party. It happened like this. I went to a party. (laughs) Orgasm is compelling enough for me to unveil myself. I went to this party and I met this guy, which sounds typical, right? This wasn't a typical guy. So he said, I'd like to introduce you. Oh, you can use this line if you want. (laughs) I'd like to introduce you to this sexuality practice. And I said, huh? And he said, I'd like to introduce you to this sexuality practice. And then he said, okay, you are going to take off your pants. And I am going to leave my clothes on. And then you're going to lie down and I'm going to put all of my attention on you for 15 minutes. Okay. And then at the end of it, you're free to go. Now, I am a good woman, and I have the defenses of every woman. I know how to say no, but somehow I found myself lying there with my legs (laughs) butterflied open. And so that you can know what the practice is, so that you can go home tonight and try it, I'll describe what he did. I was lying there, my legs were butterflied open, and he did what you would always expect in a sexual act. He took a light and shone it down there. And then he began to describe what he saw. He said, your outer labia are coral. I'm noticing that your inner labia have this red tone to them, and they're swelling as I look at them. And I couldn't hear anything after that because the tears just started flooding. Something began to thaw in me. I had never been looked at or felt that kind of compassion in that area before. So then he sat next to me. And he put his right thumb at the base of my introitus, which is the area you would enter, were you to have intercourse. And he took his finger and stuck it in lubrication. And then he pulled his finger up and he put it on the upper left-hand quadrant of my clitoris. Now the upper left-hand quadrant, it's of my clitoris, would be, were I facing you, the one o'clock position where my clitoris o'clock. And he stroked. (laughs) And he stroked up, down, up, down, 
up, down, up, down, no firmer than you would stroke your eyelid, that tender tissue there. So it was great because nothing happened. Absolutely nothing. I was where I always am or was when I was in any kind of sexuality act. I was in my head. I was thinking about whether or not I looked good. I was thinking about whether or not I was doing this thing right. I was thinking about whether or not this guy was kind of creepy. I was thinking about whether or not I was going to marry him. I was thinking about <laughs> whether or not my stomach looked a little poochy. And then all of a sudden, the traffic jam that was my mind broke open. And it was like I was on the open road, and there was not a thought in sight. And there was only pure feeling. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had access to that hunger that was underneath all of my other hungers, which is a fundamental hunger to connect with another human being. And that's where we're going to take a commercial break because uh, we need to sit with this for a minute. <laughs> Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at NJM.com. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the hotter, juicier, classic burgers. Mr. Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, of all the McDonald's burgers I've ever hamburgled, these are the hottest, juiciest, and tastiest. Brubble. Hurry in and enjoy one of our 350 bundles, like a daily double and small fries, for a limited time. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any of the offer comparison to prior classic burgers. Welcome back to our studio, where we have a special guest with us today, Toucan Sam from Fruit Loops. Toucan Sam, welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, and um, it's Fruit Loops, just so you know. Uh, fruit? Fruit. Yeah, fruit. No, it's Fruit Loops. The same way you say studio. That's not how we say it. Fruit Loops, find the loopy side. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. really gets in there, right? I mean, it really describes it to detail. And she says in the TED Talk, which is still beyond me that she got a TED Talk, but also not a surprise at all, uh, that she's had orgasms before. She's had a sexual life, but this orgasm was different, which makes sense. I mean, if you were on your way to becoming a celibate nun, a good orgasm could knock you off course. I also, also, There's also different forms of orgasm as well in looking at what the experience is like, what your headspace is like during the encounter that would really dictate what the experience is like. Was that her first time squirting? We don't necessarily know. That's kind of startling to some individuals. And that's why the details are so important, knowing that she gets to disclose however much she wants. But when we think about orgasm from a clinical standpoint, there are so many mechanisms involved that we need to know details in order to make very personalized recommendations versus this overarching perspective of just your mind can cause an orgasm. Yeah, factually it can, but there's a lot of other stuff that you can do that involves your mind as well. So I have lots of questions about what had gone on that night. This is also 
19, in the 1980s and 90s, it sounds like as well. So we're looking at time points, how much sex education, how much in access to details and not details necessarily, but like basically instruction manuals. What all we had at that point was porn and medical journals. Yeah, this was I think she graduated in the early 90s. So it was like probably mid 90s or so. Yeah. And I'm always wondering, you know, like uh, a lot of these like sex positive, like you go 1990s Buddhist San Francisco. Like I think it's like a young Richard Gere. But have you noticed that a lot of the these sex positive spaces like every guy just looks like roger stone instead <laughs> there's so much drug use can we talk about that for a fucking second there's so much drug and alcohol use around the 80s and 90s especially san francisco different like the different coasts like had different substances at that time too like how much marijuana was involved lsd and coke oh wow. yeah how and it's all about free love all of this like veil of like uh inclusive sexuality and all this stuff but really it's everyone's just fucked mm-hmm. up it's, i mean it's like a lot for the most part it's funny you said squirty because uh, I, I had written here this made her dedicate the rest of her life to pursuing the female orgasm and build an empire of very damp mattresses <laughs> so that was <laughs> that was you kind of took my thunder with your squirting line. So that's even though you weren't making a joke. I mean, I'm just saying you set me up. <laughs> I, did I rain on your parade? I mean, oh, oh gosh. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Oh, my God. Get the rubber sheets. What are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> So I want to take a step back because, as I said in the beginning, this whole thing was repackaged from the 60s. But from where? From who? How? Nicole Daydone, for a brief period, studied under a man named Victor Barranco, who founded these sex communes called the Lafayette Morehouse or the Purple People. Purple People because they had purple cars, purple doors, purple clothes, all the whole nine yards. These communes would go on to be the model that Daydone would use in one taste— Victor Vic Barranco was born July 28, 1934, to a black father and Jewish mother who were both very talented jazz musicians. They were married for 51 years, and according to interviews with Barranco, they were miserable, even divorcing twice during their marriage. They were consumed by music, apparently. So already, like a lot of our other fraudsters, problems at home, early on, disruptive childhood, creates that environment could be a contributing factor to who they later become. And for Barranco, he would later go on to do a variety of jobs, try the Marine Corps, an appliance salesman, but really he made his living as a collector for the mob, a real tough guy. Yeah, and then uh, it also probably didn't help being half black, half Jewish in the 1930s uh, (laughs) because uh, everybody kept pointing at him and going, get him, he's all of them. Yeah, Jesus Christ. One of the things I love about your context, Justin, is that it is sometimes so fucking spot on that it shakes me up so much. The fact that I'm now visualizing a mixed race kid in the 30s of black Jewish parents is terrifying. It's like John McClane with that sandwich board in Die Hard 3 when he's walking up the street and Samuel L. Jackson sees him. He's got the N-word on the sandwich board. I feel like that's what Victor Barocco was like walking around the 30s, like that, that kind of target. And it's precisely why, like, the mainstream society hated jazz music. They're like, you know what jazz music leads to? You'll be smoking reefers and next Negroes will be having relations with the Jews, producing a supreme mongrel race. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, you. His first wife was a socialite named Susie. And this is where we see the birth of Lafayette Morehouse. Apparently, and... There's no way to confirm this. Barranco took part in the CIA-sponsored LSD experiments and left that believing that he had a gift for therapy and human transformation. What do you know? Same thing happens to me after I do acid. He centered on this idea of perfection. Susie, around that same time, had told them that she had been unable to achieve an orgasm. They went to several psychologists and couldn't figure it out. But then Barranco got so focused on getting her to come, they started this practice called the due date, which was, what do you know, a clitoral massage. He then goes on to get her to come for hours at a time. That's like Terminator. That is insane. Yeah, that's like that's like T-1000, like chasing John Connor level of focus and determination. That's not cool. That's scary. This is like what your childhood, you're like, my mommy and daddy didn't love each other enough, so I'm going to make you come for three hours. 
hours. It seems strange. But they were doing this together. And then they formed these communes called Lafayette Morehouse. The first one was called the Oakland Morehouse. And it was on a 17-acre piece of land in Lafayette, California. And so... Let me let me just play a quick clip because there are a lot of people that came through Lafayette Morehouse and there are people that kind of splintered off after a while. Remember, this is like mid to late 60s. So people are into communal living. They're into kind of alternative lifestyles at this time. But at some point, some people were like, I don't want to do this anymore. But Barranco, nonetheless, had an intense influence over everyone. Let's listen to a quick clip. And it started in 1968. Victor Barranco and Susie Barranco uh, were doing sensual research, and so they uh, they took the information that they discovered and called it basic sensuality and uh, started the first house. Victor Barranco, to me, was one of the two most powerful male influences in my life. And he was my partner in doing this house and running it and stuff, and one of my best friends. And it was like a way they could live a good life, and so they could sell these courses, and at the same time they did good deeds. He said he called it serve the world unselfishly and make a profit from it. He was selling courses then, so already we're starting to see the seeds of one taste here. Getting people to a commune, selling courses to them, making a profit on a sexually free lifestyle. One of the ways that Lafayette Morehouse described itself was as a private educational research institution, which is open to people of all ages, backgrounds, and points of view. So there were Morehouses in Oahu, Hawaii, one in Atlanta. These started to pop up everywhere. No libertarians, though. None. Here's the turn. So one, sure, not so bad, sell some courses. You're teaching people this new kind of mindset, though. But like a lot of fraudsters, he started with, sure, wanting to get his uh, wife and him to be more connected. But what really was going on is that this was a profit motive. So here's what he would do, Justin. He got this property in the middle of a, a big you know, acreage, right? And people would sometimes gift him the property or you get a good deal on it. And there'd be an old, decrepit kind of Victorian house on the property. And he'd bring young people. He'd bring 20-somethings. You know, he'd bring, you know, 18, 19-year-olds apparently as well. And he promoted this free love type of, you know, sensuality, this group living, this man-woman relation, very heteronormative type of vibe here. He would bring these people together. He'd pay them basically nothing per month. But he would also have them work on the house to improve it. So what happens when you make improvements, capital improvements to a house? It raises the value of that property. So as the owner, he's now getting labor for next to nothing, getting jerked off by God knows who throughout the week and calling it a course, and his property value is raising every single time there's an improvement. Yes, we have a word for this where you uh, you in exchange for theoretically giving someone a place to stay, they put a bunch of free labor into the land and they don't uh, share any of the profits of that land. What is that called? Traditionally, we call that slavery. Oh, but, got it. But got it. <laughs> yes, people could theoretically leave, but they created an environment where you're constantly taking these these classes. They called it responsible hedonism, right? The, the, this vibe that they created around there. And now there was a lot of criticism. At, at one point, there's a story in here about a 22-year-old woman named Diana that was on a gynecological exam table with her dress pulled up and her legs spread. And Victor Barranco is standing over her. And there's a group of people just all around. A whole crowd of people are watching. And he asks her to recite nursery rhymes. It was a show that, and this is Diana apparently saying this, that she, quote, said, you could talk while you're coming and that your memory is good and that you don't lose consciousness of what you're doing. You can add and subtract and do things with your mind. It wasn't meant to be an erotic demonstration per se, but it was intended to be educational. And so let's 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 play a quick clip about the the classes that they were that they were taking, which <laughs> interesting to say the least. We would recommend if you never have taken a course that you take basic sensuality, which contains as much as of the information of the lifestyle 
as we can put into a single course. Um, then you get into the laboratory courses where you have a partner and you get to um, like touch people and so on. We gave demonstrations on sensuality, doing a woman, feeling contractions of an orgasm, but this was all, and I want to repeat this, this was all with consensual agreement. People were over 21. There's no kids allowed. <laughs> <laughs> this is so creepy. I like it. No kids allowed. And it's just like the most scumbag looking guy in a hot tub giving this interview. Oh, my God. And it's like, yeah, we promise no, no children. Usually when someone's that adamant about it, um, usually problems are are popping up there. Like anytime one guy, you know, I, I just like that he just gave an interview with a gold chain on in a hot tub. And just, you know, he's like, there's this is not going to look crazy at all. Especially when I do a, a like a really suspicious disclaimer, like by yeah. the way, no kids, no kids, no kids, no kids. We're not into that. We're not into that shit. And, and listen, you noticed in that clip there were different levels of the classes, and that's exactly what Nicole Day Doan made and One Taste. They had different levels for your classes to keep you in the system. Now, while it was consensual, what does consent even mean when all the pressures around you are making you stay? Are making you stay involved, are making you, you know, try to get more people to do classes. Or if rape is part of the program. Exactly. Like where it's like, you gotta have, you can come if you have sex with someone you don't wanna have sex with at all. It's like, well, at that point, like what is, yeah, if if you've made non consensual sexual contact part of the programming, it's like, yeah, what is consent at that point? Exactly. When you just remove the idea of it, you kind of disassociate consent from all of these things. And a lot of people weren't into the Barranco style of communal living. Some people ended up splitting off from the Barranco style and creating their own kind of Morehouse. And these are people that are talking about that right now. Let's take a look at that clip. There was 20 people in the house when I moved in. And it was like after two days, you were in love with all the people in the house. You would never associate with all those different kinds of people left up to your own devices. Everything from crazies on SSI to... PhDs. Oh, I like I like here now best. We don't do a lot of the traditional Morehouse things that I didn't like doing anyway, like being a maid. And see, it used to be when Vic lived there that the maids serve him and take care of the powers that be. We had to have just the right uniform and get that, pay for that ourselves, get it made, you know, and there were rules, you know, how you're supposed to manicure your nails and, you know, all this stuff. No one wants to wear it. No one. You only have to be some pretty far in to become a maid, actually. The politics um, at Lafayette. But here we don't do that. So, right, it's very clear. It wasn't just about, like, free love. It wasn't about responsible hedonism. It was about control. He made people, he made women wear uniforms, be maids, play roles. One of the things they talked about among themselves is when they they talked about other people as marks. They were very transparent about this being a grift, basically. And they were joking about it. And this is exactly what uh, one tasted. They actually called people marks as well. It's it's really incredible how insidious something that was created before could just be repackaged with like a a tech bro sheen and then called wellness. I want to play one story that (laughs) I just think is hilarious and awful at the same time. But there is a story of a guy that was a parole officer that went to one of the parties and this was, uh, this was his experience. Uh, I was a parole agent for the state of California. I used to place a lot of uh, my clients or the parolees that were on my caseload would, would reside at the Morehouse programs. So one of the parolees that I had, uh, a resident there at Morehouse, was, was going to be married. And she and her fiancé decided to get married there at the, the residence. So they invited me to come to the to the wedding. Now you have to understand this is kind of a third world program, and here I am, you know, coat and tie, and I'm a state parole officer. And uh, there were some of the people that weren't real excited about having a what they thought of as a narc coming into their their wedding because it meant that you know some of the other goodies that they were going to share had to be kept uh, on the side. They were a little paranoid. And we were drinking wine and having a good time before the wedding, and then they announced that the wedding would begin, and they ushered all the guests upstairs. And so we went upstairs, and I thought this was a little strange, but I figured, you know. And we walked in, we were ushered into a bedroom, and the bride and groom were in bed. Um, she was wearing a veil, and that was about it. And I think he, I don't remember what he was wearing other than maybe a little bow tie. 
And so we were all treated to the wedding um, ceremony right there with the bride and groom in bed. And we were all circled around the bed. And, and then after it was over and they were pronounced uh, husband and wife, we all applauded and they passed champagne around. And then I decided it was time for me to go because I was cramping the party when they invited all of us to stay there for the consummation of the marriage. Uh, at that point, I figured, well, I'll thank you very much. I really appreciate being here, but it was time for me to go. <laughs> so uh, that was one of the highlights. And at that point, I realized that things at Morehouse were a little bit different than they were in the normal mainstream kind of communities around, around here. Now, I'll stick around for a naked wedding where we're all standing around the bed, eyes wide shut style. But once that, once we saw, started talking about consummation, then I'm like, now this has gotten weird. Whoa, guys. Whoa. Oh, whoa. I'm all for some naked stuff over here. Uh, I love the vows. I thought you guys were very connected and uh, doing your vows, but uh, I don't need to see penetration. Jesus Christ. What the fuck is wrong? The 60s were crazy. The 60s were insane. Way crazier than I even thought. Yeah, it's just, you know, when you're coming out of a decade as conservative as the 1950s yeah it's like this is like this is like the overkill and then like this and then the 70s kind of find like a happy medium it's like let's channel all of this into disco yeah (laughs) like let's just like let's make like let's kind of put this in kind of a place and then then the 80s is like all right uh we gotta shut this down here come sdds and drug addiction and you could even just tell by the way he was talking about it that this was just so normal for all of them. And Baraka created this kind of program, this lifestyle through these classes. I mean, he did these public displays of you know orgasm and then sold classes based on that. And he got people to really think in this different way about sexuality, about connection. And like anything in the fraud land, in the wellness space for that matter as well, because that's really what we're talking about here as well. There are elements that are helpful, right? Thoughtfulness, connecting, all that stuff. But it does get a little weird when you're, you know, aggressively selling things uh, and you're making people do things that are against their will or making them think that it's not against their will when inherently they just, you're taking away their power of consent. But I think the craziest part is that even the people that went through it that knew it was a grift, that knew it was a scam, that knew they were in it for nothing but profit and they were victims in and of themselves, they still took a lot of value from that practice. Yeah, and I think geography and timing has something to do with this too. I think when you're talking about the pre-tech money Bay Area, this is the perfect area for a scheme like this because it's where so many young people are trying to either experience counterculture or strike it out on their own or sort of like live some kind of like California dream or any of these things, right? So really what this is, is it's the same thing as like the the like Times Square pimp waiting for a girl from the Midwest to like get off a bus. Yeah. Right. Because that's his mark. It's like th- that. this is just the West Coast version of that. Like this guy's just waiting for like some girl with no place to live that's wandering around like the hate Ashbury. And it's like, oh, I'll give you somewhere to live. But and then you put them in your system, you know. Exactly. I want to play a clip. This is <laughs> so strange. But this is another person that's part of that offshoot of Lafayette Morehouse. And she kind of encapsulates the curriculum from Barranco very well here. I can just touch this chicken, like, to handle it and move it around, and I'm not really noticing, you know, how the chicken feels I'm moving it around. Or I can decide to really notice the chicken, um, both, even though I have gloves on, and, you know, we wear gloves all the time to make out for um, survival sex reasons. But I can touch this chicken with a taking touch, which is for me. A taking touch is so that I notice what's good about the chicken and what feels good to me. I'm doing it for me, not for the chicken. And that goes for a person too. So I'm touching it and I'm noticing how soft and smooth it is and how good it feels to my fingers. Now I just felt that in my crotch right then and there because I have a connection between my fingers and my crotch. That's kind of interesting. I never got off on touching a piece of raw chicken before that is the best Popeyes commercial I've ever seen <laughs> how are you gonna do that to the chicken has the chicken not been through enough it's been through mass food production in America and then you just just violated that chicken oh my god 
you know, Justin, you said that this is some white people shit, but let me just say this is um, a nice African-American gentleman that is uh, definitely in the culture. To say race uh, is the head of, of uh, your clitoris. Maintain a stutter stroke. You have to do a Barry Sanders move on the clitoris. <laughs> oh He's like, lord! I wish you the you know the listeners could see that it's a black guy, but it's like it's like kind of like you know the black guy from Portlandia, like that's uh, <laughs> like the old black guy. That's who that was. that's who's like a sex teacher. <laughs> Okay, so that was the early years of Nicole Daydon, how they started, One Taste, and where the origins were from Victor Barranco and the Lafayette Morehouse, Purple People. So next week, I want to get into more specifics of the class, how the downfall happened, where is it now, what is going on with Nicole Daydon, where is Nicole Daydon? And we'll tackle that with Dr. Jordan as well next week to really talk about the experience of the victims and what they actually went through at the end of the day. As always, Fraudsters is a production of Zero Cool Media and the Last Podcast Network. Hazel Bryan produced this episode. Ian Brannon is our editor. Our associate producer is Anna Laranaga. Emily Fusco is our researcher. Our legal intern is Greg Fingerhut. Our theme music is by Salmin Tafik. And some music in this episode was composed by Chris Olson. Thanks so much to Dr. Jordan, and we'll see you next week. Saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.